and welcome to another exciting new episode of Digging Up the Past. But today's episode is extra exciting because we have a guest speaker, Mark Hyden. Mark and I will be sitting down and talking about a very exciting topic, which is the foundation of a little known city called Rome. Anyway, I am your host, Petros Katupis. And Mark, introduce yourself. Who is Mark? Who is Mark? Well, first of all, thanks so much for having me on your podcast. I'm I'm really happy to be here. I'm Mark Hyden. Uh, by trade, I actually work for a think tank based out of D.C. And I, I'm the director of state government affairs. So I spent an awful lot of time in state legislatures. But I also do a lot of writing, as, as you uh, are well aware. I've written a few books on ancient Rome, and the one that I think we're going to be talking the most about today is based on one of the coolest characters of, of all of ancient Rome, Romulus. You know, Romulus was definitely a cool character, and honestly, I never gave Romulus an, a, a single thought until I read your book. Now, the thing that I appreciate about all of your books is just the way that you actually gather the information and put it together. I actually enjoy your writing style a lot. And it just, you take all these sources from different ancient writers and sort of just blend them in together and make this fluid, you know, narrative that just is easy to digest and just makes sense. So Romulus, you know, this book was a great book. I enjoyed this book a lot. And there's a lot of history behind the character himself. And he served as... A, a model for, for the Roman citizens. Although when you really truly dive deep into the history of who Romulus is and the events that surrounded the founding of Rome, it's kind of hard to imagine why. Yeah. And I find Romulus to be a fascinating character. I mean, it, it, it's a legend. It's really hard to parse through what's myth, what could possibly be true. But there are a lot of lessons uh, that the Romans could draw from Romulus. He was a cautionary tale in many ways because he he did some pretty terrible things. I think we can all agree. Exactly. But, but somehow he was almost always able to find redemption and turn something terrible and ugly into, into what Rome became. You know, it, it, it was a flower that sprouted out of uh, some of the disgusting things that, that Ramas was engaged in. But, you know, I, I'm, I'm also interested in trying to find, is there any smoke where there's fire? Because there's so many ancient sources talking about an eponymous founder. Uh, and I'd like to imagine whether or not there's any truth to that. And I think that's uh, another interesting topic that we'll probably delve into a little bit later. Is there any truth to that? And and that's something that many historians and scholars still argue. I mean, the founding of Rome was what, supposedly what year? Seven? The, the, go on. Yeah, the, ca the canonical version says 753 BC, but there's a whole lot of other uh, dates that have been given by uh, ancient authors that range anywhere from around 800 BC to 700 BC. So anywhere in there, throw a dart and there's a chance that an ancient writer may have pegged that as the founding. But a lot of that complication comes from the fact that it all depends on the calendar you follow, right? Because at the time of the Romans, when they dated you know, the, the, the founding of Rome back, they were also using a different calendar or potentially using a different calendar. Am I wrong with that? Yeah, supposedly Romulus came up with the Romans' first calendar, and it had 10 months uh, and, you know, is maybe 60 or so days shorter than, you know, the modern Gregorian calendar, which you can imagine, it doesn't take too many years before your years, your seasons, everything is out of whack. 
But when you compound those problems further, because some of the ancients were trying to figure out when was Rome founded, when did all this happen? And they knew of some celestial events that supposedly occurred during Romulus's life. So they tried to use uh, astrology to count backwards. But when you consider how messed up their months were, there's a lot of guesswork involved. Actually, it reminds me of a book that you had recommended to me one time uh, when we were in contact. I don't remember how long ago, a year or two ago. And it was a book called Rome Day One by Andrea Garandini. Mm -hmm. And I guess he's uh, an Italian uh, archaeologist. And he actually tried to correct or, or I shouldn't say correct, but make sense of the differences within these calendars and try to make sense of when in time the early days or the founding days of Rome could have been, which is why I bring the whole calendar issue up. It wasn't the focal point of his uh, research, but he used it as a, as a tool to be able to date uh, the early days of when Romulus, if he were a, a, a physical and not mythical human. Yeah, and I, Andrea Carandini has done some uh, some interesting research. Now, he's not without controversy. I don't know that I agree with his thesis because he, he brings a lot of evidence that's fascinating that seems to kind of tangentially support the notion of a hero founder. But he, I think he goes a little bit too far in his thesis when he's like, no, this absolutely proves it. Well, I think it's impossible, based on what we have now, to say yes or no, there was this hero founder. It's possible, but modern historians, many in academics especially, have said that Rome was founded probably somewhere in the vicinity of 625 to 550 BC. Well, that doesn't comport with the, the myth that throws it in around 750 BC. Well, Carandini has done this archaeological research, as well as others that have found that the Palatine Hill that Romulus supposedly built, the bottom layer of pavement from the Forum, votive artifacts, and even a house that some have imputed to be the Casa Romuli, all date to around the 700 to 800 BC. So I'm not willing to go down the same path and agree with Carandini, but he brings a lot of research uh, to the table that kind of flips academia on its head a little bit and may offer a little bit of support to some arguments for the existence of Romulus. I did find the, um, the book itself to be, to have an agenda, an agenda to prove the mythical hero, the, the story surrounding uh, Romulus correct. I, he, the the archaeology was done to prove myth correct, which is a common theme you do see in early days and not so much anymore. Are you kind of referencing Heinrich Schliemann uh, yes, with, uh, exactly. with, with the discovery of Troy? Well, you know what? It worked for him. And Andrea Carandini, I, I think, probably is a bit of an old school archaeologist. He's been doing this for a very long time. But then you have this other heavyweight, T.P. Weissman, who's kind of the antithesis to him. And he has, it's kind of fun reading uh, some of the work because they they definitely kind of butt heads and they take differing approaches. Um, and T.P. Weissman, like he is a, an esteemed scholar and I have uh, the utmost respect for him. But I think that there's probably some truth that lies in between those two academics. It's funny that you bring up Weissman. And I want to get more into some of the topics that Weissman discusses in another book that uh, you had recommended called uh, Remus, A Roman Myth which was another great one and a bit less dry than the uh, than, than the, the Rome Day one by, by Carandini. But before we jump into that, I kind of want to take a few steps back. 
in order for the uh, the listener to understand where we're heading, let's give them a background about Romulus. Romulus is a one set of a pair of twins, his his brother being Remus. There's a whole backstory where there was a a, a king Numitor, king of Alba Longa, correct? Mm-hmm. And this uh, king Numitor, his throne was usurped. He was overthrown by his uh, jealous brother uh, Amulius who in turn ended up ordering the execution of Numitor's son and forced Numitor's daughter into to become a priestess of Vesta, a Vestal Virgin. Now the story goes that the god Mars had his way with Rhea, the daughter of uh, Numitor, and she became pregnant. It's one of those things that we always see in both myth and religion, the, the idea of a virgin pregnancy and, and a virgin birth, right? But we have an in, a case of it here. She eventually gives birth and Amulius eventually finds out and he orders the execution of these twins who were born to her. And I forget the name of the soldier, but one of the soldiers that was given the order to essentially kill these twins ended up taking them to the river Tiber and just left them at the the, the banks of the river to die. And then there's this amazing thing where a she-wolf shows up and then suckles these children until the children are found by a shepherd, Faustulus, I believe his name was. And they eventually grow up as shepherds. And then there's a whole series of events that lead to these twins essentially getting rid of Amulius, restoring Numitor to the throne. And then Numitor essentially gives them an opportunity to start their own cities, their own towns. Am, am, am I missing anything? I think that pretty much covers it. Yeah, I mean, that's that's um, essentially the canonical version of Romulus and Remus. It goes on a little bit further from, you know, Romulus ends up either killing his brother or one of his his uh, subordinates kills him on his orders because Remus belittles him and they have this wedge that comes between them based on what should the name of the settlement be and where should it be located. Remus wanted it named for himself, understandably, and Romulus disagreed and thought it should be named after him. So, you know, Remus dies, unfortunately, uh, and it makes Romulus, he just is distraught about this, but he picks himself up. He founds this city, but, you know, all these different things happen, these different wars. Uh, he orders the theft of all these virgins so that they can procreate, which uh, I'm sure if you asked them, they would have been very opposed to this. And he engages in some wars that are some of them are defensive, most likely, and he grows the domain. But as he gets older, he becomes this tyrannical king who, if we go by the canonical version, during a, a thunderstorm and possibly an eclipse, he just magically ascends into the heavens and becomes the god Quirinus. Now, you can probably see there's a few episodes in there that there's plenty for us to doubt, whether it's uh, a birth because of uh, his father being Mars, whether it's a, a she-wolf suckling him or sending into the heavens. So there's plenty to go ahead and doubt, but it's a fascinating story. And, you know, from a religious point of view, I mean, there seem to be a lot of parallels with you know the story of Jesus Christ. That's obviously a topic for another day, but it's crazy when you think about the commonalities of these stories across multiple cultures. And it's not just Roman culture, Jewish culture, and then you also have similar concepts in, in Persian culture too with the Zoroastrians. They have these common themes, but these stories surrounding Romulus do sound pretty fantastical. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's, and T.P. Weissman has been uh, great to point out the similarities. I mean, going down the river, it sounds kind of reminiscent of 
of the story of Moses, uh, the fantastical episode about being rescued by a she-wolf and being suckled. That's something that's found in other cultures as well. But yeah, the such interesting... as uh, the Akkadians, they had the story of Sargon uh, the Great of the Akkadian Empire. He, he was drawn out from the river, was he not? And eventually rose to the ranks of king and created the first Akkadian Empire. I mean, it, exactly, you're right. A lot of similarities. And this gives people... Uh, pause immediately. I mean, anyone who's a rational thinker is like, well, that should make me a little skeptical. But when you look into the ancient accounts, you see that there are more, like prosaic alternatives that are much more digestible, more believable than these stories. First and foremost, some ancient writers said Mars wasn't Romulus's father. Amulius, the, the rogue king, actually raped uh, Rhea Silvia, that or one of her admirers. Uh, someone else said that uh, Aeneas was actually um, either the father or grandfather of Romulus. So that episode could easily be explained by that, but the Romans may have wanted to create this fantastic legend to kind of hide this, this rather ordinary uh, truth, if it was true. And, and then when you talk about the wolf, the she-wolf suckling uh, little Romulus and Remus, her name supposedly was Lupa. Well, some ancients said, you know, maybe that's not true. And they uh, suggested that it was actually uh, a prostitute that suckled little Romulus and Remus because Lupa uh, was also a, a kind of a derogatory term, essentially translating to whore. So they may have created the she-wolf myth while retaining a kernel of truth with that is Lupa and Lupa in order to hide kind of this disgusting backstory. And then the legend of Romulus ascending into the heavens, well, that one's cause for concern as well. But some ancient writers said, well, that's not what I've heard. I've heard that actually he became a tyrannical king and some of his subjects rushed him and they killed him, but they cut him up. And this is just horribly disgusting. They dismembered his body and each of them hid a piece of it in their toga. Then they ran off and they buried it. And then they told the rest of Rome that he magically ascended into the heavens and you know, eventually said, oh, and he's a god now, by the way. So there are a lot of these stories that kind of undercut the fantastical legends and give you kind of a more realistic point of view that could have actually occurred. That is both intense and crazy at the same time. But it also reminds me of something that Wiseman touched on in his book about Remus. And going back to the she-wolf slash lupa, one of the focal points to the research that he was trying to showcase in his book was centered around this mirror of Bolsena. And that mirror has long been interp interpreted as a mirror depicting the she-wolf suckling the twins. But based on Weissman's interpretation, it wasn't the twins. It was the Larrys, a protective set of uh, deities that at some point in time, the stories of Romulus and Remus ended up taking over and the story eventually evolved. Yeah, the, the mirror is just absolutely stunning. People use that as evidence for Ramos and Remus because you see on their images that you could interpret as being part of the Romulus legend. You see two kids, you see this uh, wolf that it, they appear to be suckling, you see animals in it, you know, whether it be uh, a woodpecker or, or anything else that's part of the Romulus myth. But then you see some other things that don't really make sense. Like there's another animal that some have said was a wolf, but it really looks very feline, uh, if I'm recalling correctly. So it doesn't really make sense that there'd be a second wolf or a, a feline of some form in there 
there. So could this be related to an earlier myth that hadn't uh, adopted the kind of canonical form? Or was this something completely unrelated? Uh, it's really up to debate. Uh, for that, there's a lot of competing theories about who all the figures are on there, whether it's the twin Laras and other folks related to ancient Rome or, or something else. We really don't know. I think you have to go uh, another 100, 200 years or so before you actually get evidence that you can say for certain that's Romulus and Remus and that is existence, uh, not uh, excluding literary uh, evidence but that you find something that is evidence that you can say for certain that the Romulus myth had taken root by that point. And that's something that I always found fascinating. And that is there are many things that over time we've come to learn that have not originated in Rome. For instance, let's go back to the Aeneas uh, myth. Virgil had this entire epic about Aeneas traveling the entire Mediterranean west from Troy as a Trojan refugee with his fellow Trojans. They went on these crazy adventures similar to the style of, of Odysseus in the Odyssey and eventually landed on the Italian mainland. And then from the Italian mainland, you know, there's was a set of wars that went on. And long story short, Aeneas eventually became a forefather ancestor to Romulus and Remus through this generational path. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make is this story was an add-on after the fact. It has long been believed based on archaeology that the Aeneas myth was something that was introduced early on in Etruscan culture, which was north of the Tiber in Etruria, you know, what is modern day Tuscany. And as, you know, Rome started to grow, they started to expand their territory uh, further north, slowly taking over Etruscan territory from they, which was just on the other side of the Tiber and further north. And then they were also expanding south towards what was uh, called Magna Graecia, which was like the Greek colonies in the south of the boot of the uh, peninsula. But as time went on, you started to see the Romans absorb things from other cultures, specifically the Etruscans. So the idea that Romulus and Remus, the story of, could have taken over pre-existing myth does not seem that crazy to me. There has also been you know, some thought, or I remember reading at some point that the Larry's twins, and I don't know, were they twins? I don't remember mm -hmm. seeing them referred to as twins, but these Larry's twins that were being suckled by the she-wolves supposedly on this mirror, if it is them instead of Romulus and Remus, may hold some Etruscan roots. I remember reading somewhere that the word Lars is an Etruscan word that translates to Lord. I don't know how that equates with what the, the Larrys evolved to later on, primarily because there's really not much to these twins in later Roman culture. They sort of disappeared from imagery. We don't have any images from of them, or at least any images that claim to represent them. And they only exist here and there in the writings of later authors. Yeah, they're, they're minor deities, uh, at least when you look at uh, it from the perspective of, of later Rome, when Rome became the, the large empire that, that we all envision. But when you talk about Aeneas, there's different theories about how somehow the Romulus and Remus myth got intertwined with that. When we think of Rome, like I just said, we think of Rome as this empire with 
these great artists, these great writers. But really, it started out as a backwater. This was not a nice place, not a place that was envied. It was probably pretty gross, to be perfectly frank. And they looked at Greece as, you know, this is a high civilization here. These people know how to write. They build beautiful things. They're incredibly smart. They have this technology. Uh, so there's a theory that they tried to find a way to link to the Greeks and Troy and Hisarlik, which is actually in, in modern day Turkey, was part of the Greek world, or at least on the periphery of it. Um, so they were able to try to link one myth to another, which gave uh, the Romulus myth and, and that line even more legitimacy and power, at least legendary power, which made the Romans feel probably even more proud of it. But when they linked it, it, it appears when you look through some of the ancient writings that they may have tried to link it, but then they kept having to move the timeline because the timeline of when they had the founding versus when Aeneas would have been fleeing from Troy, like it didn't really work out at first. So eventually uh, Rhymeless had to be some sort of great, 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 great grandkid, you know, some 300 years later, instead of being his son or his grandson. And, you know, there's another competing myth. So we, we'll probably get into like all the different foundation myths because T.P. Weissman, you know, he's found 60 different ones, around 60. The ancients knew of a bunch of different ones as well. And one of them actually has Rome not being named for Romulus, but actually for a girl named Roma who was with the Trojans and they moored in Italy. And she was just like, I am sick of all this travel around the Mediterranean. So she burned all the ships, forcing them to stay in Italy. And eventually they named Rome after this, this, this arsonist girl. I recall reading that at some point. And for those listeners who are not familiar with the Aeneid, again, it's, it's a story that was written by a ancient writer and poet named Virgil, and it was commissioned under the ruler, the Roman ruler Augustus. The work itself is incomplete, meaning there is really no ending to it. It just kind of stops, but that's because Virgil died. <laughs> so, you know, we don't really have the ending to the story, and I'm trying to remember how many books make up what we have. I think it's 12 books of, of the Aeneid, but as I described earlier, it, it starts off in, in the same style as Homer's Odyssey, where, you know, you have a Trojan refugee going through on a, on a bunch of adventures until we eventually get to the Roman or the Italian mainland. But what also fascinates me is the stories that sort of attach to the Aeneas story itself. I don't know if you're familiar with this, but the founding father of the, the Britons of the UK, Brutus of Troy, he was said to have been a nephew, I think it was, of Aeneas. And through some unfortunate series of events, he was exiled from Italy. And then he went on his own set of adventures. Again, in the same Odyssey slash Aeneid style, he goes on a bunch of like crazy adventures, meeting mythical, almost mythical creatures, and eventually lands on the British mainland. And the story eventually gets to the point where he becomes the founding father of the Britons. And to this day, the Welsh royalty in the UK still trace their mythical lineage back all the way to Brutus, which I find fascinating. I wish I could do that. I wish I could say that my uh, ancient ancestor is so-and-so from the Trojan War. Well, you'll probably have to edit that out, but I think you could you could probably fudge it and no one will know any of the difference. So I think you'd be good. But that that's... You know, 
that's familiar, uh, you know, because, and for your listeners, uh, Aeneas was a Trojan prince. So it makes sense that people would want to link to that because you're linking not only to this great civilization, Troy, but you're linking yourselves to the royal family, which gives you even more legitimacy. Exactly. And then going back to your previous comment, I do often tell people as a joke that my great, 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 and then some grandfather is Leonidas of Sparta. And that's only because that's only because my father was actually born in a small village just outside of Sparta. So, you know, I have some Spartan heritage in me. So it's only natural for me to lay claim to my ancestor being, you know, one of the 300 that fought off the Persians. Well, you've got me beat. I mean, I, I got engaged in Santorini. So that's about as close as I can come to competing with that story. Well, Santorini is a beautiful island and one that uh, has a lot of, a lot of history, Minoan history. But unfortunately, that history predates our topic by a little less than uh, a thousand years. The eruption of the volcano on the island happened around 1650 BCE. Although I've been to Akrotiri, so you can still see some of the ruins there. And I spent time on Crete, where you can go to Knossos, uh, which is probably a little controversial, given that they've reconstructed some of it and tried to take some artistic license and how it looks. But it's beautiful, and I encourage your readers or listeners to... Uh, uh, to visit sometime. Unfortunately, there's little to nothing that we know about these people, their language. Um, they they had a language, they had a written uh, language of some form. We just have no idea what it says. Well, yeah, we know that it is an Indo-European language. We know that there are some, not much, but some similarities to the languages spoken on the Anatolian mainland, because there are some similarities with the Luvian uh, language that was spoken in southwestern Anatolia in the Arzawa lands is what the Hittites called that part of their empire. But yes, their language is highly undeciphered, although I will tell you this, we know more about the Minoans than we do about the Mycenaean Greeks. We know almost nothing about the Mycenaean Greeks because their writings even though they adopted the same you know, phonetic or syllabic alphabet uh, that the Minoans used, the Minoans used linear A, the Mycenaean Greeks used linear B, and even though they used the same type of alphabet, the language that the Mycenaean Greeks spoke was Greek. And we know this because we've translated, but even though we've translated their language, all the writings that we have of theirs, it was purely administrative. We have almost no writings related to religion, no writings related to culture. It was just so-and-so gave three sheep. So-and-so is stationed at this location for military purposes. It was just administrative. So all we have to go by to try to understand who the Mycenaeans were is the material evidence that archaeologists excavate from the graves and the sites such as Pylos and Mycenae and, and, and so forth, but also, and you know, this goes back to the beginning of what we had discussed with what archaeologists may rely on myth for and, and, and ancient writers. Sometimes we have to go back to Homer. Some of this, these concepts that happened during the late Bronze Age survived orally through the Dark Age until we get to 
the archaic period of Greece. And then we have the time frame of Homer when he's reciting these poems. Yeah, but, and I, I find it fascinating also. Um, Homer, obviously, there's a lot of embellishments in, in the poetry very clearly, but you know, he was vindicated to some degree because for a long time, people didn't think that the Trojan War was a real thing that even occurred. Um, Heinrich Schliemann, you know, as we mentioned earlier in this episode, discovered uh, the site of Hisserlich, Troy, and it vindicated some of those who believed that the Trojan War was a, ver a verifiable um, uh, event. It just probably wasn't the event that Homer was really talking about. It's probably more of a series of conflicts rather than a 10-year-long one. Um, so it, it looked like that site was sacked on numerous occasions, but there was a, a kernel of truth found somewhere in Homer. Exactly. And then the fact that Heinrich Schliemann also discovered Mycenae added to that. But the problem is we don't see a connection between the Greeks and one of those layers that showed war or the city being sacked. And if we talk about Aeneas and the Aeneid and the migrations of what could have been peoples from Anatolia westward, we're talking about a time period that was very tumultuous. I mean, there was a lot going on. Entire economies were collapsing. There was mass migration of people across the Aegean world and in, in the Near East on, on land, not just by sea, but also on land. And to try to track down a peoples moving west to substantiate the stories of Aeneas, you know, which eventually made its way into local Etruscan and later Roman culture, scholars are still struggling with that. Yeah, and there's a lot to struggle with with the Aeneas myth. Um, you know, other cities, ancient cities, I believe, they spoke about him stopping by there. So there's a lot of places that try to uh, link themselves to the Trojan War one one way or another. And I think that one's pretty far-fetched. But when it comes to, to Romulus, you know, also very far-fetched when you look at the canonical myth. But I, I've tried to parse through some of the ancient accounts. And, you know, we, we talked about the dozens of different accounts that there are of Romulus. But the, the familiar theme that I found is the majority of all of the ones that T.P. Weissman has, has identified they all said that someone whose name was either Romulus or something similar had something to do, was integral to the founding of Rome. So that's why I, I like to think that perhaps there is just a sliver of truth in there. Now, of course, the, the legends vary greatly between them. Many of them are very similar, but then you have others that are just all over the place. You have one saying that Romulus was not the offspring of a god, directly at least. Uh, like we think with Mars, but rather a servant girl um, had sex with a phallus that magically grew up in the in a hearth, uh, and that that's how that Romulus came about. Others say that the, the founder or that eponymous hero was not named Romulus, but it was Romus or Romos or Romulos. So there's all these different variants, but you can't help but notice that there's a lot of similarities. Um, and these folks were writing in a time period much closer to the event that they're trying to chronicle event than we are. Now, again, I'm not saying that Romulus was real or the Romulus canonical myth is real, but perhaps the ancient writers weren't a, a bunch of bumbling ignoramuses like some modern academics like to say. Perhaps there was a tiny bit of truth in there, just like there was with Homer. It would be great if there were a sliver of truth. Being the romantic that I am, I'd like to think that uh, Romulus was a 
you know, a, a physical human being. Now, whether all the events surrounding Romulus are true or not, that's neither here nor there. But just to be able to say Romulus was a real person and the rest is completely myth, it sort of reminds me of the Sumerian king Gilgamesh. According to the Sumerian king list, Gilgamesh was an actual king that ruled the city of Uruk. But in time, a lot of these crazy stories started to just crop up about Gilgamesh. All of a sudden, he's traveling to the cedar forest to get cedar wood, and he comes across a protector of the forest named Umbaba. In another story, he's battling some other Sumerian city-state or it doesn't matter. There's just so many stories. And then eventually these separate Sumerian stories would evolve into this single story. And that single story was further refined until we get to the time of the later Neo-Assyrians and, and uh, Neo-Babylonians. Yeah. And a lot of this, it's reminiscent of that game you play when you're, you're kids telephone you know you whisper something into someone's ear by the end you know it may have a little similarity to the beginning but it's changed drastically and you know there could be a lot of reasons for that things being passed down in oral history uh things being retold in in the form of plays uh, ancient writers taking great literary license or just being poor historians there's a lot of uh, uh possibilities when it comes to that but then you also have to consider some of the alternatives like w when it comes to to the romulus myth you know there's a chance that maybe rome was just named for the for an ancient appellation for the the tiber river rumon another uh, uh possibility that i believe plutarch alert alluded to was that it was named uh uh, for the word for strength from the Pelasgians that settled there. And then others believe that the Romans or some kind Greeks decided to give them a really cool founding story like some of the great ancient uh, Greek cities had. So all of these have to be considered. Uh, where lies the truth? I don't know. I, well, it may take another episode before we get down to that. So why did the ancient Romans, or what convinced the ancient Romans that Romulus was a real person. Well, there's this large corpus of literary evidence that they, of course, took, took to be mostly real. Of course, a lot of people were skeptical of that. And then you have the alternative stories that came about, but it was accepted as the canonical myth, you know, hundreds of years after Romulus supposedly lived. And the first accounts of a kind of a founding hero that an eponymous founding hero came maybe 400 years after Romulus supposedly lived. But if you want to look at the later Romans, the later Republic, and even in the empire, they felt like they had verifiable evidence that Romulus was, was not only real, but he was their founder. They had his litus, which was uh, it was a serpentine uh, shaft uh, shaped uh, shaft that you would use to quarter the skies when you were doing augury. Uh, flight of birds, and you try to interpret what those birds are, are trying to tell you. That was supposedly Romulus's staff, um, and they stored it even in uh, a shrine to Mars, which the Gauls supposedly burned down around 390 BC, but it survived. So even much later, they had this staff. They're like, well, obviously Romulus is real. We have his staff. But beyond that, the house of Romulus, the Casa Romuli, was on the Palatine Hill, and it was maintained by the ancient Romans with great religiousness. They, they believed that that was his home and they would keep it up, although apparently they didn't keep up with it too well because it caught on fire. But uh, aside from that, they believed that that was proof. They knew where he lived. They knew where he, he spent his life. 
And then you have the Ficus ruminalis, which was this fig tree where Lupa, the she-wolf, was given shade as she suckled the twins. And they believe that they knew the exact tree, although it must have been a descendant of the original tree. Uh, there was a cornel tree as well that was related to the Romulus myth. Uh, according to legend, he was standing on one hill and he threw a, a dart, a spear from one side to the other. And Atlanta was some such great force that it sprouted and grew into this cornel tree. And they supposedly knew where that was or its descendant. And then the last one is the Lupercal Cave. It's a, a cave beneath the Palatine Hill that was really closely related to the Romulus myth. You know, the she-wolf scampered off into this cave after Faustulus came and rescued the twins, according to legend. So the ancient Romans knew where all these things supposedly were. Now, all of them are lost to history, except for the Lupercal Cave, which has recently been rediscovered, and then the remnants of a house, which may or may not be the Cas Romuli. Uh, so for them, this was proof that there was, there was a truth at the heart of their founding legend. But if we're going to be uh, skeptics here, and, and we absolutely should be, none of that to me, would actually prove that Romulus existed. It just proves that we have these really ancient things that we hold in high esteem, and then it's been passed on from generation to generation. So did these things have anything to do with Romulus, or was his legend grafted onto these things, which were pre perhaps previously held in high esteem? And I think that's a question that ancients and moderns alike need to consider. And it's something that you see quite often. It reminds me of the story of when Lot, his wife, and their daughters escaped from the city of Sodom when Sodom was being destroyed. And God gave instruction to Lot saying, whatever you do, do not turn around. Do not look. So everyone except for Lot's wife listens. She turns around and immediately turns to a pillar of salt. And now you go to Israel and you can see this pillar of salt that is Lot's wife. You know, you have the story surrounding this pillar and you find this everywhere in every culture. So I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that was the case. And it goes yeah. back to what I said, you know, originally, you know, the, the, there, there could have been stories, locations, things that could have been of great significance either to, you know, the Latins at the time or, or other cultures such as the Etruscans, or anything else that would have eventually evolved to just tie in Romulus or Romulus and Remus or anything Roman specific. Sure. And regardless of whether there was any truth to those objects in antiquity, and, you know, of course, I'm very skeptical of that. To the Romans, they really believe that he was a real person once upon a time, and he offered great contributions to Rome. I mean, and despite his flaws, you know, he, after killing his brother, which could have very well have been the end of his story. Uh, he goes on to found uh, the city that becomes one of the greatest cities that the world had ever seen. And he obtained redemption in that. But shortly after that, he commits another misdeed in order to get the women he needed to procreate and make sure his city lives on. He steals all these, these maidens from neighboring cities. So again, it tainted his legacy. But the result of that was they did procreate and the women and the men felt madly in love and truthfully in love with each other, if we believe the ancient accounts. And it led to wars, which Sounds bad on its face, obviously, but it led to Rome growing and absorbing these other communities or joining with them. So Rome grew even further. But again, Romulus trips up. He has a, this awful habit of doing terrible things and he becomes a tyrant and has people executed, uh, subjects executed by being thrown from the Tarpian Rock. A terrible way to go. 
Uh, I've seen the Terpian rock and it'd be very painful to go down it. Uh, he also has his subjects beaten. So he becomes this tyrant. And then depending on which ancient account you pay attention to, either he was brutally murdered and dismembered or he sent it into the heavens. But either way, whichever one may or may not have happened, the Romans ultimately considered him the god Quirinus going forward. So he was rewarded and found redemption in the end. And his legacy lived on in other ways. The Romans believed that, of course, I mentioned, you know, he founded Rome, but they said that he created a lot of traditions that they that were near and dear to their hearts, whether it was bringing the, the uh, cult of Vesta to Rome, creating the tradition of the depositing of the Spolia Pima, creating a the predecessor or the system of clientela, bringing the augury and creating to Rome and creating the, the Senate. All of these things and many others are traced to him, which really bolsters his legacy in Rome's history. But what I find fascinating is that Rome itself as a city-state, as an empire, did terrible things, but also found redemption. So Rome and Romulus have this great similarity that they're both um, examples of how greatness is sometimes born of disgrace, but the opportunity for redemption is often not that far off. Very well said. And this is all such fascinating topics. And, you know, maybe one day we'll, uh, we'll have you back on the program to tell us more. Maybe, if not about Romulus, about somebody else in, uh, in Roman history or, or related. I would like to thank uh, Mark Hyden for joining us on this very special and, again, very exciting episode of Digging Up the Past. No, I really appreciate you having me on. This has been uh, a lot of fun. And as you as you know very well, I have a knack for writing biographies of, of neglected ancient Romans. So I look forward to coming on and telling you about another one here soon. And here we are at the end of yet another episode of Digging Up the Past. Got something to say? Or do you have ideas for topics to cover in future episodes? Then be sure to share those comments at diggingupthepast.net or simply email me at petros at petroscatupis.com. Who knows? It may even be featured in an upcoming newsletter, video, or podcast episode. This is Petros Katupis signing off.